we discovered is that people who have experienced trauma and are engaged with scripture are actually flourishing holistically at a higher level than those who have not experienced trauma and are not scripture engaged. So all of the stuff you would think makes a difference doesn't make as much of a difference as God's word. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. I recently read the 2022 State of the Bible report from the American Bible Society. The news seemed pretty bleak. Bible engagement in 2022 is down in the United States, and not just a little bit, way down. I was shocked and more than a little discouraged. That's bad news. Lots of people appear to be walking away from engaging the Word of God. Lots of people are facing stress and trauma. But in the middle of all this, there's hope. Because the American Bible Society, along with researchers from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard, found that Bible engagement brings better outcomes in people's lives. And for those of us who are frequent Bible readers, we know this to be true. However, the news is still no less disturbing and a little bit perplexing. What do we do with this? How do we respond to the reality that less people are actually engaging with the Bible, but we can actually show statistically that people who are more engaged often flourish, even if they've experienced trauma? So I decided to reach out to the American Bible Society to help me understand what was going on. And in today's conversation, I sit down with the Director of Ministry Intelligence, John Plake, John is a former pastor, missionary, and is an adjunct professor of intercultural studies at Regent University. Listen in as John helps us unpack the report and gives us some practical ideas for what we can do. Happy listening. John Plague, welcome to Apollos Watered. Thanks, Travis. Great to be with you. All right. Are you ready for the Fast Five? Bring it on. Here we go. New York or Chicago-style pizza? Chicago. All day long. Okay, tell me why. I I agree with you. I pastored in Arlington Heights. I uh, went to college in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Eduardo's Pizza got me through college. So, yeah, you got to have Chicago-style pizza. Gino's East, doesn't matter. Uh, When I go back to Chicago, I'm always good for a slice. Oh, I love Chicago style pizza. Okay, here we go. Second question. My favorite author is, and why? So hard to pick. Uh, You know, guilty pleasure or really favorite author? Really favorite author. C.S. Lewis. Okay, go with guilty pleasure. Uh, Louis L'Amour. Seriously? Seriously, I've read read every book Louis L'Amour ever wrote. I grew up in rural <laughs> Illinois around horses. I mean, what's not to like about Louis L'Amour? Don't judge me. I, I like Pulp Fiction. It's okay. Oh, I was totally not expecting that at all. <laughs> okay. Third question is this. If you were a car, 
What car would you be and why? Ford F-150 pickup. Why? That's a great choice, but why? They're so versatile. Crew cab, though. You got to be able to have the family along with you. You got to be able to haul some wood. I mean, we heated my house with wood when I was a teenager because dad had free people to cut lumber for him and, and stack wood and split it. And I just like how useful they are. So, yeah, you can do anything with a pickup. It's like the Swiss Army knife of cars. All right. Number 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 four, you, you have a PhD in intercultural studies. So usually if you've been in intercultural studies, you've had a very funny cross-cultural experience at some time or another. What is your funniest cross-cultural experience? I'd just come home from the Philippines and was preaching at a church in Northern Illinois in Zion. And I wanted to greet people in Tagalog. And so this very multicultural North Shore of Chicago kind of church, lots of folks there. And I got up and I said, Kamusta, which is a cognitive homoista from yeah. Spanish, but Kamusta, Kamusta ka, uh, which is Tagalog. And the response to that, I told them, is Mabuti. And a Puerto Rican uh, lady in the front row stood up and shook her body in a very uh, telltale kind of a way. And she said, what'd you talk about my booty? <laughs> and I realized we'd missed something. I had not anticipated that particular <laughs> response. So, so many weird cross-cultural experiences, but that might be the weirdest involving three cultures. I honestly know exactly about what you're talking about. I, it's just the funniest thing. Whenever you have any type of culture, language inevitably messes something up. And one culture might have the same word and it means something totally different. I mean, it might sound the same, but I, I love that. That is a really good one. Okay, here we go. The last question for the Fast Five is, if you were a vacation destination, what destination would you be and why? Otavalo, Ecuador. Oh, that's very specific. Why Otavalo, Ecuador? Otavalo is a market town in along the Pan American Highway northeast of Quito, and it's up in the mountains. And right southwest of it is uh, a little place that sits on a volcanic lake, and they have these cabins uh, with wood-burning fireplaces, and it's just out of the way and quiet, a little bit rugged and remote, but they have great empanadas. So, you know, uh, I, I, I like the quiet. I'm, a, I'm naturally a bit of an introvert, and I recharge my batteries when I'm alone and in nature. So, yeah, I would, uh, I would take two or three of my closest friends and go hang out in Otavalo, Ecuador. I really want to go there now. I can like smell the wood burning after you talked about it with the truck. And now this, I mean, did you know there's a candle company there? At least there used to be called Mandels and it's candles for men. And, <laughs> and, and, and it's just for men and the candles, like they have different names, but I remember one was like auto garage. One is sawdust. One is campfire because it, one is like pipe smoke because like these are the most relaxing smells for men. And, and I, I always wanted to get a candle from there so bad. I'm like, this is going to go against my wife's French vanilla. <laughs> I got to tell you, I hate French vanilla. I, 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 I can't Coffee should it. not have flavors in it and uh, candles should not be scented. Okay, I'm sorry. I know the... I've just offended half of the world, but 
<laughs> but you wanted it. And so there's your fast five. <laughs> oh, that's so good, John. All right. Well, let's let's get into the topic because you work for the American Bible Society. I think many people that have been in church for any period of time, they're they know the terms, they've seen the Bibles, but what is the American Bible Society? Talk about that for a bit. American Bible Society is one of the oldest nonprofit organizations in America. We were founded actually on the steps of City Hall in New York City in 1816 by a guy named Elias Boudinot. And Elias Boudinot was famous for uh, having been a president of the Continental Congress. He was with George Washington at Valley Forge and was in charge of supply chain management, basically, in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he, lots of famous, famous people. The first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay, was one of the founders. And uh, just a fun fact, I think the only one who was ever an executive of the American Bible Society and president of the United States at the same time was John Quincy Adams. So really storied history about making the Bible available to everyone everywhere in a language and format that they can understand and afford. So we do a lot of work globally in translating, printing, and distributing the Bible, and now distributing the Bible digitally. We also work among hurting people who find that their wounds and the trauma that they've experienced are a barrier to them being able to engage with God's word. And uh, over the course of our history, we've provided nearly 7 billion people with their very own Bible. So it's a great organization. Wow. Wow. I, I I knew some of that. I didn't know actually half of that, really. There, there's a lot that's there. Um, now, tell us, though, about one of the things that you guys do is you do a report every year, like the State of the Bible. You've been doing it for how many years now? This is our 12th year. We began in 2011. 2011. So what was the impetus to even start doing a State of the Bible? Like, report, you know, why think- did you guys feel that need? I think what we wanted to be able to do is, as the Bible Society for America, we wanted to understand what do people think about the Bible, and what do they think about church, and what do they think about faith in general. So we can kind of understand, well, okay, the Bible might be in every Walmart in America, and and that's fine, but does that mean people are really interacting with it in a way that's changing them or not? And do they have objections to the Bible or barriers to the Bible? Or when they use the Bible, what does that accomplish in their lives? And how do we explain that to a watching world who might not understand why the Bible is such an important part of a vibrant Christian faith? I, I'm i excited by that. Several years ago, I had an interview with ministry, and their goal was to get a Bible in every American's hand. And they did a study um, of about 30,000 people, and they found that a lot of people had Bibles, but they notice just what you're saying. People had them, but they weren't reading the, reading them or engaging with them, and they didn't have the language and the criteria to understand how to even evaluate, and that's what you guys have done. You've created a criteria to examine just really the state of how people are reading and how people are engaging with it. Is that a pretty much a, a good idea of it, or am I missing it? No, I think you're right on. I think okay. one of our goals is to see by 2033, and it's a big, crazy goal, but we want to see 100 million American adults consistently interacting with the Bible in a way that shapes their choices and transforms their relationships with God and with others. And so that's a tough goal. Right now, we're at about half of that. About 50 million American adults meet that definition of being scripture engaged. And we just think that society is better. The church is stronger. 
people are benefited when they engage with God's word in these transformational ways. And we want to help make that happen. Talk about that for a moment. You talk about how many people are reading the Bible and you mentioned scripturally engaged. What are the criteria? Uh, what are the, the categories? I don't know how, what, what's the proper language here? You have scripture yeah. engaged, you have disengaged or unengaged. What, what are the categories? So we break this down into three categories just to make it easier for people to understand. The mm -hmm. majority of Americans, 145 million right now, are what we call Bible disengaged. And the easiest way about that, these are people who never really choose to interact with the Bible. I mean, they might hear it by accident at a wedding or, or at a funeral or at some event that they go to, but they're not reaching for the Bible, picking it up and trying to see what it says. Then there's a big group of people in the middle that we call the movable middle. They're a really interesting group of people. They're kind of Bible test drivers. Uh, you know, it, it, you think about you're looking for a new car. And yeah. you don't quite know what you want. And so you go maybe rent a car if you've got to travel for business or you go test drive a car at a dealership. You're just like, I want to see, I want to kick the tires and see if this thing works for me. And I think people in the movable middle are asking the question, does the Bible work for me in the questions that I have? And then there are scripture engaged people and scripture engaged people to one degree or another, they tend to be consistently interacting with the Bible. They're reading it or they're listening to it. Often at least once a week or more outside of church, um, the vast majority of them fit that category. And um, they allow the Bible to be a guide for them when they have questions about, well, what should I do in my relationships or, or what decisions should I make that I'm facing? They often will refer to scripture, if not explicitly an explicit teaching of scripture, you should do this and not do that like the Ten Commandments. They're trying to derive the wisdom and the overall story of scripture and make sure the decisions they're making are in line with what God would want them to do and what would be honoring to God. So we have these three categories. Give them to me again. The scripturally engaged, the movable yep. middle and the disengaged. Is that right? That's that's correct. <clears throat> okay. So I, I've read the I've read the report, although you just released a new part of it. So thanks. We for wanted that. to mess you up. So we released you, you totally a new, a new chapter to the report this morning that you this couldn't morning. possibly prepare yeah. for. Yeah. And I was like, thanks a lot, John. I appreciate that. Just leaving that on my door. But but in the other stuff that you released, to say it was shocking was for me an understatement. I'm at the edge of the trends. I see a lot of the trends, where they're going, where they're headed. And it wasn't a surprise that things have gone a bit negative. It was the amount of how much had gone negative. So give us a quick summary. How many people went from the scripturally engaged to the movable middle, roughly? So it's a, it's a difficult question to answer when you pose it exactly like that, Travis. Okay, okay, we, we don't okay. know what individuals moved where uh, because we don't track the same individual over time. We, we kind of have a thermometer that's this survey instrument that we use, and it's a really sensitive thermometer, and we stick it in the pool uh, you know, once a year in January and take the temperature of the water. And so Got we it. don't know where that water molecule went uh, that we're measuring at that moment. It could be anywhere in the pool, but... Uh, suffice it to say, here's what we had been seeing. For the last four years, from 2018 to 2021, we had been seeing the Bible disengaged shrinking. That group of people had gone from 136 million in 2018 down to only 100 million in 2021. And that was great news because at the same time, we saw the movable middle, those Bible test drivers, that mm -hmm. nearly doubled from 50 million in 2018 mm way up to 95 million in 2021 during the pandemic. 
And over that time, what we saw for scripture engaged people was it was pretty flat, right in the low to mid 60 million figure. Okay. So here's what happened in 2022 Bible disengaged, the category that never reaches for the Bible, went from 100 million to 145 million. Mm. Let that sink in for a minute. Almost 50% increase. Then the movable middle went from 95 million back to 66 million, a gigantic mm. correction. So all of the gains from 2021 mm. were given back. And the worst news was that Scripture Engaged, which had been in the mid-60 million range on average, went down to 49 million. So taken together, this was the largest disruption in Bible engagement that anybody has ever measured in America in such a short period of time. Now, over time, we had been seeing people who use the Bible, and it's a pretty loose definition to call someone a Bible user. They just have to use the Bible on their own at least three times a year. So this is not, you know, wow. people who read the Bible every day. Bible users are just like, do you ever use the Bible? That number just fell off a cliff. We had been seeing approximately 50%, a little bit less, a little bit more, but approximately 50% of Americans were Bible users way back since 2011. This year, 39%, dropped by 11%. That was 26 million Americans who basically pushed back from the Bible, and they answered the question this way. Realistically, they never used the Bible on their own outside of a church service. And so taken together, these were the biggest changes that any of us have ever seen. And I got to be honest, we just doubted. I mean, when we got the figures back, we went, we did something wrong. This can't be. Societies don't change that quickly. But as we dug in and we double-checked and triple-checked, and there's all kinds of details about how we did that, we can go as crazy with that as you want. But, but the long story short is, after we checked everything and double-checked it and triple-checked it, the numbers are right. Uh, America had experienced a tremendous disruption in its relationship with the Bible, and all of that was happening in the last three weeks of January. The last three weeks of January. What what what's the last three weeks of January? I have to ask. Yeah, so we asked the same question. What is it about the last three weeks of January that made such a big difference? Because when we dug into the numbers, what we saw was the biggest drop was related to three questions we asked that are time sensitive. They asked the question in the last month. Think about your Bible experience in the last month. And so we knew, well, maybe what's going on here has something to do with the last month. Okay, so it probably doesn't surprise anybody who's listening that the most Bible-engaged geographic regions in America are the American South and mm -hmm. the American Midwest. The coasts have other, uh, other pressures and other societal things going on that tend to crowd out the Bible or... Uh, if they ever had those traditions, they've been loosened in some ways over the years. But the South and the Midwest, kind of the Bible Belt is how we talk about it. But what was happening the last three weeks of January was the Omicron variant was right. hitting those areas uh, to a much greater degree. You can overlay the drop in Bible engagement and the graphs about where the Omicron variant was spiking. And you realized, huh, I wonder why earlier in the pandemic, um, it seemed like the pressures of the pandemic drove people toward the Bible. What is it about these three weeks or month or two months, perhaps, that were pushing people away from the Bible? 
And that's when we dug into the questions that dropped the most. And here's basically what it was. We know that when people read the Bible, it does fundamentally two things on the inside of them. We call these the spiritual impact of the Bible. One kind of thing that it does is it makes people hear the voice of God, sense that God's speaking to them in some particular way. So it's not just an old dusty book that they pick up and they read as literature, like maybe they're reading, you know, Thomas Babington Macaulay or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that would be great. I love Macaulay. Uh, but if you pick up the Bible, you don't read it like Macaulay. People whose lives are transformed by it read it like God is speaking to them. And there is this thing that happens where God's word and God's spirit come together and something else goes on. Something lights up on the inside of them. They have what John Wesley uh, may have referred to as his Alders Gate moment, right? When their heart is strangely warmed and they're like, oh, I'm hearing from God. Okay, so they were still doing that. They were hearing from God. But there's another thing that happens on the inside of them. And that is they sense God's voice calling them to engage in his mission by being generous and loving toward others, by worshiping together with others, by serving people in Christ's name and living out as an alternative kind of prophetic community of faith in the midst of the broader community. Okay, cool. So that's what they couldn't do. And we looked back at the data and we realized in somewhat subtle ways that ability to live out their faith has been frustrated for the last three years. It's been falling and falling. And this was just this steepening of an already existing uh, trend uh, that basically made people say, wow, before I would read the Bible and I'd want to go you know, serve at a soup kitchen or I'd want to help my next door neighbor or something. But because of the restrictions and honestly, the fear that has surrounded the COVID-19 pandemic, People have shut themselves in, and their faith has become even more private and, if you will, somewhat less vibrant than it had been before the pandemic. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. One of the fascinating things that I, I, I find from your research is something that we have been sensing for some time in talking with um, neurotheologians, that new kind of rather new subject where people are examining the brain science now of our faith. And they're seeing how our faith is how, how it's playing out in the brain with character development and, and, and a relational development. And as one man told me, uh, just recently in an interview, we had a conversation and he said, what you're seeing is actually a 
uh, a relationship revolution or reformation because you see now is the importance of community of being with people and in essence being like a log in the fire you know when you take the log out of the fire it cools we need to be around other people we need that to push us to read the bible to express our faith to live that out and seeing your research really dictates you can see that what groups as you're looking at this, you also look at it by regions. You see that going on. And do you look at it also by ethnic diversity and the different ethnic groups and how they're affected by it? We actually do. We look at all kinds of demographics from educational background, ethnicity, household income, generation. Uh, we look at all of the typical things that social scientists look at. And there are variations. Um, one of the things that we noticed recently is that community type had a lot of influence on how people were experiencing stress during the pandemic. And it sort of makes sense. If you live in a community that's an inner city or you live in a very, very large city, um, there tended to be a lot more uh, close living quarters. And so mm -hmm. people be began to be afraid of their neighbors. Uh, mm -hmm. Often people choose to live in cities. If you ever listen to Tim Keller, uh, yeah. They live in cities because there's something about a city. There's something vibrant about being close to your neighbors and walking to the grocery store and knowing everybody around you. And it's yeah. it's just this own subculture. But it was really stressed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. I, I think the thing that's fascinated me most, though, as I look at the data, you know, we look for all the typical scientists call them covariates. Okay, does gender play a role? Does age play a role? What what of these kind of demographic variables play a role in how people's lives flourish? And overwhelmingly, you can detect an effect in human flourishing or hope or stress or any of these outcomes that you're looking at. But when you layer in scripture engagement, it swamps everything else. Um, the chapter that we just released is a case yeah. in point. So we were looking at people who had experienced trauma, personally experienced trauma. We ask a number of questions around trauma because the Bible Society has been involved in helping people deal with trauma through biblical resources, uh, really since the Congolese Civil War, right in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. So that mm -hmm. Central African area is where all of this started, and now it's, it's everywhere in the world. And so we're interested in trauma, and what we discovered is that people who personally experienced a traumatic event and are still experiencing effects from that, they are often really holistically struggling. I mean, their relationships are a mess, and they don't think highly of themselves, and they don't have a lot of hope for the future, and they have a lot of stress indicators and all of that kind of thing. But when we asked if they were scripture engaged and, and gave them that layer of data as well. What we discovered is that people who have experienced trauma and are engaged with scripture are actually flourishing holistically at a higher level than mm. those who have not experienced trauma and are not scripture engaged. So all of the stuff you would think makes a difference doesn't make as much of a difference as God's word. Which is awesome to see it play out statistically like you you say it as a pastor you say it as a leader you say it from the pulpit you you interact with people you teach them in bible studies small groups so on and so forth but to see the statistics bear that out is quite impressive so let's talk about the newest release because the the first part of it is you mentioned when you released the report it was a bit of a doom and gloom to see such a as you said the biggest disruption we've ever seen i know like i said when i saw it i was shocked to see the numbers jump so much, but at the same time, not because right now I'm seeing numbers 
<laughs> everywhere pre-pandemic. But then to see the pandemic added on to that, it's just gone even further. But yet, it's not all doom and gloom, just as you referred to. You released Chapter 3 today. Thanks again for that. And what do we do? What do we take away? What, what were the major takeaways that we found with Chapter 3? Because there's there's hope. And I love the fact that there's hope. So what we did in chapter three is we asked the question, so what? Um, If the Bible society says and Bible people say the Bible's so important, what impact does it really make in regular folks' lives? Can we measure that some way that doesn't sound like a Sunday school lesson? That doesn't sound like, well, you know, it's all about the hereafter. What about the here and now? You know, Jesus says in John 10, 10, uh, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. What does that look like? So for the last several years, we've been uh, collaborating with a group of people, scholars at Harvard University, uh, who are at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and they run what's called the Human Flourishing Program. Uh, Tyler Vanderwill is the head of that program, wonderful man, and really a great group of scholars. They did not set out to come up with a way to measure the impact of the Bible. What they did is they said a lot of psychology a lot of kind of social and and psychological mental health has been built around a disease model. So, well, if you're not depressed, you're okay, right? Or if you're mm. if you're not bipolar, you're okay. So, if you don't have a disease, you must be good. But what they wanted to do is further work that's called positive psychology. And that basically says, I don't want to look at disease. I want to look at thriving. I want to ask mm. the question, what does a good life look like? And they've come up with six basic domains that lead to human flourishing. And they are happiness and life satisfaction. So if you're satisfied with your life, you're basically happy. Uh, Mental and physical health are pretty obvious. Uh, If you experience meaning and purpose in your life, you're living a life that's purposeful. If you have a sense that uh, you have personal character and virtue, that you're a good person and you seek to do good, If you have close social relationships, which is a really fascinating one, and then financial and material stability. So you're not worrying about what you're going to eat or how you're going to pay your bills. So they said, well, basically, from an analytical perspective, the higher you score on those measures, the better your life would be. I'd agree with that. You might disagree with it, but I think it's a pretty good measure. So what we did is we asked, beginning in 2020, where is America on this? And we ended up conducting the first nationally normed study of human flourishing. We actually got published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine because we had set the norms for national flourishing. Um, And then we've been tracking it over time. And what we found is during the pandemic, nationally, flourishing kind of fell off a statistical cliff. Uh, People were not happy. They were not mentally and physically healthy. And you could just pick up the newspaper and hear, wow, people are grieving, they're shut in, uh, they feel isolated, they, they're they not doing well. Suicidality went way up, um, drug overdoses, uh, deaths of despair. I mean, just read the headlines, right? Those are the things yeah. that we were beginning to see, and it showed up in the data. So then we asked the question, well, what about if people are engaged with God's word? What happens then? And what we realized is more than any other thing that we measured, actually more than church attendance, um, more than anything, scripture engagement brought about better outcomes. Um, The top one, meaning and purpose in life. So people find meaning in their life when they see their life in relationship to God's story. 
And they just are off the charts good when it comes to meaning and purpose, to character and virtue, happiness and life satisfaction. And often they are involved in vibrant Christian communities that are centered around the Bible. And so they have great social relationships with people who they can talk to about important things, not just about pop culture or their favorite football team. Nothing against football. I like football. But but there are more meaningful things that we need to have a network of people we can talk to about those. And among them is what's going on on the inside of us, what's going on in our heart. And again and again, we find that Bible-engaged people are doing better than the rest of the world. The, the second thing that we asked about really was about stress. Uh, Gen Z, the youngest adult generation, 18 to 23, 24 years old, they are just so stressed out. It's a stressful period of life. It was stressful when I was an emerging adult and probably when you were too. Yeah. Um, we don't have a lot of experience, but we're expected to be able to do a lot of things. Yeah. And they're making all kinds of decisions. Where am I going to go to college? Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? What's my career going to be? All of those kinds of things are stressful for young adults. And so we see that among the youngest American generations, but they've just been off the charts, high in stress. But when we look at people who are scripture engaged, what we find is that their stress levels are much lower than everybody else in their own age groups. And then finally, uh, we wanted to look at this issue of trauma. And what we found was people who had experienced trauma, if they were scripture engaged, they actually were flourishing more than trauma-free people who were not scripture engaged. So Mm. there's this mountain of evidence that there is a fullness of life that Jesus promised that people actually find when they have a life-giving relationship with God's word. When we were in that transition period or we're emerging into young adulthood, if you will, the stress was high. But is is there a way to chronicle the effect of technology and the social media aspect or factor in the lives of the younger people that we're looking at today? You know, I think there is. I had a conversation about this recently with David Kinnaman and Sky Jatani, and mm-hmm. we were really talking about some of the impacts that that Gen Z are experiencing as a result of technology. And Mark Matlock as well was part of that conversation. And they've done some great work in this area. There is no doubt that technology has been a double-edged sword. So this morning, my younger daughter uh, was sitting at the breakfast table with me, and she wanted to get a, a gift uh, for her for her sister for her upcoming birthday. And so we pulled out my iPhone and we went to the Amazon app and she was flipping through and finding things and putting them in the shopping cart that she wanted to give for her sister. Well, I mean, you couldn't do that, right? We went to right. Walmart, uh, yeah. we got in a car, we drove somewhere to go buy somebody a gift. And, uh, you know, before Walmart, goodness, I remember Carlinville, Illinois, before Walmart came to town. And so we'd go to the five and dime, or we'd go to the Ace Hardware store, whatever it was that we were going to. And so there've been some blessings that have come as a result of technology, but the social media aspect has really been difficult for young adults. There's a lot of comparison. There's a lot of bullying. There's a lot of, um, kind of comparing the way you experience your day-to-day life with teenage angst to the polished, curated views that you get Mm -hmm. of other people and of influencers. And I think there's a tendency to say, wow, my life really isn't all that good at all if the only relationships you have are online. We, We see the numbers, as you mentioned, 
over the past year have gone down from a Bible reading perspective. But at the same time, I remember looking at the data, and I wish I could remember where it was. Bible apps and usage have gone up, you know, precipitously. How do you juxtapose those two to see Bible reading via a digital platform to the Bible engagement that we see? It's a great question. So digital apps are great. Um, and there are really two key groups of people who are using digital Bible apps. The main group of people that uses them is people who are already scripture engaged, and they have replaced Strong's Concordance, right? right? If you're trying to find something and you don't know where to look for it, it's easy. It's also not a 10-pound KJV Bible that, you know, you're you're trying to, nothing against the KJV. I love 1611 English, but nevertheless, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a poetry to that, and it's awesome, it and I like Shakespeare too, um, but you know, there's a distance that comes if the only access you have to the Bible is the old family Bible that's maybe written in an archaic form of English right, that maybe right. has all of the great family events inscribed in the fly leaves. And, and that's fine as an artifact. But when you're trying to find answers or what do I do today, there's a bit of distance that comes from the archaic mm-hmm. use of language. So one of the things that we looked at really early on was well, what's the role of Bible apps? So for scripture engaged people, it has become a search tool and a less weighty, like less physically massive way of carrying the Bible with them all sorts of places. In fact, even uh, Pope Francis had said uh, that he wished that every Catholic would carry a Psalms and New Testament in their pocket and refer to it throughout the day. It was kind of an interesting thing to hear from Pope mm-hmm. Francis. Uh, I think a lot of us do that with digital devices like the one I'm holding in my hand. And we're able to look up whatever we want to find in scripture, digital Bible reading plans. Those are great. So the other group of people that uh, do use the Bible, but they are the minority. Uh, They use digital apps because they're in the movable middle. And they use it because, frankly, they're unfamiliar with the structure of scripture. Mm. How do I find what I'm looking for? So often people in the movable middle have somebody in their life who was a spiritual person, a Bible person, and they admire that person. They tell us a lot that it was mom or it was grandma, and they remember mom or grandma reading their Bible and praying for them. And now Mm -hmm. that person may be gone, but that artifact of the Bible is still with them and they open it up and they find marginal notes and, you know, uh, prayed for Johnny on this day. And Mm -hmm. uh, they go, wow, I I wish I could be like that, but I actually don't know how to navigate the Bible. They don't understand the Old Testament, New Testament, the Tanakh. They don't understand the Gospels and the Epistles and they, they, they just get lost because it's not like any book they've ever read before. So they use digital Bible apps to help them find the stories or the principles that they're looking for. And I think it's great for that. Now, here's where the Bible apps are not being used. Bible disengaged people are not picking up the Holy Bible app. Much as I love version, and I think it's an awesome tool, Bible disengaged people in America are not tending to be the ones who pick it up. Really, it's relationship and disruption together that... Mm cause people to be open to the message of the Bible. And then in those cases, um, having two things really helps. A digital Bible app can help, but a vernacular translation of the Bible is really, really helpful. And by that, I mean a modern language translation. We did a study in uh, State of the Bible June of 2020 because of the pandemic hitting. And one of the things that we noticed was the skyrocketing adoption 
of digital Bible apps, but we also noticed a skyrocketing adoption of translations of the Bible that are vernacular or modern language and leading the pack of those. It's actually a sponsor of your show, the New Living Translation. It's what, what? really, yeah, it's really taken off. And uh, I have no stake in that. In fact, I wish people would read the Good News Translation, which was uh, created by the American Bible Society back in the 60s. But <laughs> it's the same, it's the same idea, right? What was Bible good news Wars. for modern man in the early 1970s, the NLT has picked up and yeah. it has freshened the language and done really legitimate Bible translation work. And so my hat's off to them. And I think it plays a great role in helping people connect with the message of God's word. Well, even, even as you mentioned that, we had a guy on the show, Esteban Shedd of Streetlights, and a Chicago guy, went to Moody. And uh, I had a connection to him. I'd heard about it. I'd had some students that I'd interacted with over the years or several years ago that had shared this with me. And they had been working with inner city young men. And the global urban culture has exploded. We know this. And on the show, though, what he noticed is as they were working with them, they couldn't, they were reading like different Bible versions, and they're great Bible versions, but it was very foreign to the way that these kids spoke. So they tried the NLT, and even then it was hard for them to read, although they could grab it even better. What he did was, is he took the New Living Translation and set it to hip hop music. And that skyrocketed because kids could hear like a beat underneath it and they'd hear the the script like the scripture according to john and he starts with a beat underneath and it's awesome and it's exploded it's gone all over the world because global urban culture is exploding and these younger people are looking for the the bible in their vernacular and that's a very practical way to get people engaged and i want to applaud them their work i think is very phenomenal and, and commendable and I, I think many people are taking notice of it as the culture becomes much more urban and seeing people then engage it which is is really encouraging but to see the numbers still are, are, are is a bit shocking what are the solutions do you see going forward to help people re-engage the scripture because we have several church leaders that listen to this show they're asking themselves the same question many of them uh, as pastors <laughs> Many are stepping out, many are tired, they're weary, the pandemic has been real a burden for them as they've tried to shepherd their people, dealing with political issues, conspiracy theories, you name it. We, we, we know it, we experience it all together. Nevertheless, the, the mission to get people to engage the Word of God, to know the God of the Bible is still there. And as the numbers have indicated, they've gone down, but as you said, there's hope with Gen Z, there's hope with the trauma people that are, are going to it. What are other ways that we can get people re-engaged or perhaps engaged for the first time with the Word of God? I think there are two things I'd like to talk about here, and sure. I don't want to miss either one of them. The first thing is just a basic principle of how we connect people to the message of the gospel. And to tell that story, I want to back up several years. I had a friend of mine uh, who served as a missionary in uh, North Africa, in Arab North Africa. And through some political machinations, he uh, ended up no longer able to stay there. And uh, he, what was happening was the secret police in the country where he was serving were following him around and finding the underground church. And so uh, he came home and there was a church in the Chicago area that asked him to consider becoming their pastor. And he asked me, do you think I should even do this? This guy has brilliant Arabic. And I mean, he's just a wonderful, wonderful missionary. And my advice to him back then, and I was just beginning to awaken to these things, was I think you should, 
but only if you're willing to missionary the church, not pastor it. Mm. And he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, everything that we learned about pastoring, and, and that's, you know, my undergraduate degree is in pastoral studies and my early experiences as a pastor in Northern Illinois. And I think a lot of what we learned about pastoring was in this realm of received theology. This is how you do pastoring. And maybe there's a model or somebody that that made a big impact on your life. And, and it's really easy to kind of emulate that model. But as missionaries, you learn that the people you're trying to serve are fundamentally different than you are. And it's obvious. They're, they're from a completely different culture. They speak a completely different language. But what's happening because of technology and just the way culture is going, even in the United States, my neighbor next door is as different from me as the people that I served in the Philippines or in Ecuador when exactly. I served as a yeah. missionary. And if you begin with the assumption that people are basically like me, it pretty much goes downhill from there. Mm. So they're not asking the questions you're asking. They're not facing the struggles you're facing. We have to begin with them. What are the questions they're seeking to answer? And those are the bridges for the gospel and for God's word. So if we begin with systematic theology, What's the nature of man? What's the nature of God? What's the nature of sin? What's the all of these sort of systematic categories? Mm -hmm. Nobody cares. Those right. are not the questions that seekers are asking. They're asking questions like this: I just lost somebody important to me. What happens when I die? Mm. The the culture's really up in arms about abortion. Does the Bible talk about that? Uh, mm. What about? homosexuality, and how should we treat the LGBTQ plus community? Does the Bible talk about that? Can you give me answers to these questions that are affecting me day in and day out? And in many ways, the church has either come up with culturally defined answers. Well, this is what I think because this is the way I was raised, mm -hmm. or they've avoided the questions altogether rather than coming back with, well, let's gather around the Bible and see what it has to say. It might not say what you want it to say, but at least it's an honest answer. So I think we do have to begin with people's questions and answer those. What happens so often is when people have challenges and disruptions in their life, if they turn to scripture and find the answers there, they go two things. Wow, I didn't know the Bible even had anything to say about how to be a good parent. That's interesting. And the second thing they say is, hmm, I wonder what else is in here. And they begin curiously looking around. That's the start of a journey with scripture. Okay. So um, I, I think that pastors and church leaders need to begin with people's questions. I think the second thing that we really need to do is stop assuming that the people who are regular attenders of our church actually know how to engage with scripture. They don't. Mm. 30 to 50% of the people in an American church service on any given Sunday morning are not meaningfully engaging with scripture. And when we ask them why, they say, I don't know how. I really don't know what to do. I had a young youth pastor come to me not that long ago, and he said, John, knowing what you know now, if you could go back 30 years to the start of, of your ministry, what would you do differently? And my answer was, I would do everything differently. In fact, almost opposite of the way I was trained to do it. So when I was coming up, uh, this was kind of the beginning of expository preaching. Mm -hmm. it was, most people in my tradition were topical. Uh, but expository preaching was becoming a thing. And so even if you were the best expository preacher in the world and you started a series on the book of Mark, here's how you do it. 
you'd study everything you could find about the book of Mark, and then you'd kick it off and you'd take the first pericope, the first section of Mark, and you'd preach your guts out on that and you'd apply it really well. And I mean, it was all about the oratory. It was all about getting the message really good and really tight. And then maybe if you were really forward thinking, you'd hand it off to small groups or Sunday school classes still existed in those days. And you'd say, okay, you guys talk about how you apply this to your life, or you read the scripture and bring more to it. And that never worked. And it never worked because the smartest, most educated person in the room had already told you what that first pericope of Mark says. And consequently, the people who are trying to engage with that first chapter of Mark went, well, Pastor John already told me what it said. So that's what it says. Now, if you've been to seminary, you know, you've got pastoral experience, you know that the Bible speaks to us in various ways. It's not that there's an infinite universe of meanings for that passage of scripture, but the way the Spirit of God applies the Bible to our lives is very specific. And by starting out, going first, and saying, this is what it means, I shut off all discussion about what it could mean for an individual. And so if I were doing it today, I would flip that around. I'd still do expository preaching, but I would invite those small groups to dig into God's word first. And then at the end of that process, I would say, and this is what I got out of it. And this is what I think is for us as a community of, of believers. So doing it backwards, I think, is maybe the best advice that I could give to anyone. You, you know, you mentioned that in at our church, we did sermon-based small groups. We did exactly that. Actually, we would study the passage in our small groups the week before we would preach it. So people came in with a a bit of attention. Their group would would want to know, what are you going to say about this issue, rather than the opposite? Because we found, just as you mentioned, if you studied the passage afterward, everybody already said, well, the pastor's already said it, and I agree with them. And there, and there was no buy-in. There was no tension. There was just acceptance. So to see that, to see the people get a hold of that is, is really a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, go, going back for a minute, you're talking about Bible engagement. And, and, and I don't want to undervalue this because I had this in my church. There is a larger, I would even say growing segment of people that have come into our culture or have been in our culture for one reason or another that can't read at all. How do we then, I mean, what are you seeing among that group? Is there a way to even measure that group from a literacy perspective? And how are they reading? I mean, they're not reading, obviously, but they want to take in, they still want to grow. Do you see anything with that? Or do you even touch that in your research? So in our research, that is such a small group of people that it's really hard for us to get them to respond. You can imagine if they can't yeah. read or they're, they're what we call functionally illiterate, they, yeah. they don't read surveys either. Right. And so it's an underserved population. But we do work with uh, immigrant populations who maybe are acquiring English as their second or third or fourth language. And it does require a certain degree of literacy to be able to meaningfully engage with God's word. So two great tools for that. The first of them is digital Bibles that will read the Bible to you. So mm. people can often understand what they hear, even if they can't read it fluently in their own language, or they can uh, go to their first or second language, something they feel more comfortable with. American Bible Society uh, curates the digital Bible library, which is part of the architecture that runs the YouVersion Bible app. And so as new translations are coming online for every living language in the world, that's our goal by 2033, to have the Bible in every living language in the world. And it's mm. a lot of work. Uh, those will also be coming into apps like the YouVersion Bible app. 
And often we're doing oral first translations because in many cases, people can speak their first language, but it maybe has never been written or they've never been literate in that first language. They speak it every day. So orality is a big deal there. The second thing is community. You know, uh, Christian Smith is a, a really well-known sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, and uh, he uh, attended Wheaton College. He attended Gordon Conwell, and uh, he 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 teaches. Yeah, Chris is a, a wonderful scholar, and he wrote this this challenging book called "Making the Bible Impossible," and it is a critique of what Chris calls biblicism, and uh, it's worth reading. Now, I. I'll go on record saying I don't agree with everything Chris says there, but I think it is a really meaningful critique to, to say, wait a minute, uh, where is the role of community in actually what we would call in yeah. seminary, the hermeneutical community, the community yeah. that says, this is what scripture says, and this is how 2,000 years of church history have thought about this issue, and now how do we apply it in our local community? Um, I think the main thing that I found missing from if I compare my time pastoring to my time as a missionary, is this notion that the gospel still needs to be contextualized. It's not that it needs to be made relevant. It's always relevant. It's the most exactly. relevant message in the world, but it isn't necessarily understandable and meaningful to people who don't share our history, our experiences, and our categories. And so I think doing that work is something we need a revival of contextualizing the gospel. That's exactly what we're trying to do, because we've seen the culture shift occur. We like to call it a bridge. There's always been a bridge. The message is the gospel. The message has always been relevant, but the bridges or the forms that have been communicated are starting to, to crack because the culture has shifted, and we need to find these new bridges. But the Bible already has a lot of those communication pieces in that what people don't even realize because their cultural blind spots, it's just not been relevant to them. But when you study it, it obviously shows it. That's where I think we share very similar heartbeats in that regard. Um, as you're, you're you're doing this research, what is it that really motivates you about what you're doing? Because your work is extremely important to help educate, to help inspire, to help people think. But what is it that just passionately keeps you doing what you're doing? I think it's a couple things. First, it's a recognition that I acquired really early in ministry, which is I don't understand all of my neighbors. And if I don't understand them, I can't pastor them. I can't serve mm -hmm. them. You know, my job as a pastor wasn't just to care for the people who walked in the church door on Sunday morning. It was actually to serve the broader community. And if I didn't understand them, then I couldn't serve them well. And so that was where my interest in this kind of work started way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I had just gotten out of college. <laughs> uh, now, looking forward, though, um, this is like being able to have a face-to-face -face conversation with 255 million people. It's, mm. it's a way to listen at scale. And I think listening is such an undervalued skill. But pastors, we do it all the time. Right, we we sit and talk to people. We hear the issues that they're dealing with. We might not know what to do about them. That's one of the best kept secrets in pastoral ministry. Is sometimes you come in and tell us what's going on, and we don't know what to do about that. <laughs> uh, and so that helps our prayer life, or I, I don't know. Uh, but what we do know is that God's word has what we need for daily life and godliness. And yeah. so uh, I want to listen to people. And then the other thing I want to do is challenge the church 
about the status quo ante. If we always do things the way we've always done things, we're going to continue to get what we've gotten in the past. And that's not good enough. We don't see the world transformed by um, uncritical acceptance of the way we've always done things. Instead, we need a revolution of going to God's word and saying, if it happened there, it can happen here. How do I become a catalyst for full life in Christ to happen in my church, in my community, in my sphere of influence, and then trust God to broaden that influence? One of the other questions that came up as you were mentioning the different cultures and different things that that are prevalent within our culture, and you mentioned even Bible versions or translations, what though are the, the languages that you're seeing? Like, if you were to look at the top five languages in the United States that are reading the Bible, what are those languages? Well, the fastest growing Bible reading language in America is Spanish. Uh, That probably doesn't surprise anybody. So if you look at Bible sales or digital Bible acquisitions, uh, the American Bible Society helps to provide certain um, biblical translations to version, And we're able to track how many of those versions have been downloaded. And what we notice is that our English language translations have a certain trajectory of downloads. And as market penetration for Uversion goes up, of course, that trend line is going up. But what's going up way faster than the trend line is the RVR 60, uh, which is the most popular Spanish translation of the Bible in the world. Mm -hmm. And so that is probably the main thing that we're noticing. But of course, we're also trying to work with people who have maybe been displaced, who have just come to the United States. Uh, We notice that people immigrate to the United States for a variety of reasons. Um, Typically, they immigrate for opportunity, or they immigrate to the United States to escape some form of danger or persecution. And when they arrive here, they often come with very little or nothing. Um, But no matter their religious background, there is an openness among immigrant populations to, well, what do you believe here? Um, Now, they may not have a clear understanding of the religious background of the United States. Uh, Another friend of mine was uh, used to live in Beirut, Lebanon, and he found himself in a conversation with a a Muslim person there from Beirut. And uh, and so he was asking that that person, you know, what do you what do you know um, about the Christian faith? It was sparked by the, the Lebanese person asking him, well, what are the do you even know the holy cities of Islam? And he said, sure, you know, uh, it's it's Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. And the guy was kind of surprised that an American would know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. And so he turned it around and he said, um, what about you? What do you think are the holy cities of Christianity? And the guy, without hesitation, said, well, it depends on if you're Catholic or Protestant. He said, if you're Catholic, it's Rome, and if you're Protestant, it's Hollywood. Oh, I was going to say. Colorado Springs, we Colorado mean, Springs, we in Illinois. Those would have been, Rapids. but this was this was not <laughs> like a, an evangelical insider, right? And and so it was it was really interesting. Um, so the people who come to the United States may have wow. a somewhat distorted view of what Christianity is. If they think being a Christian is like what they see from the movies coming out of the entertainment industry, they might have some real misgivings about oh Christianity, gosh. but they also might have an openness to an authentic biblical message of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we know that disruptions, positive and negative disruptions, create opportunities for the gospel in people's lives. So you can think of the negative disruptions, right? Pandemic and 
grief and loss and stress and all of those kinds of things. But positive disruptions do the same thing. When we track data out of version about the Bible reading plans that people in the movable middle and among the Bible disengaged, if they adopt a Bible reading plan and we say, well, what are they reading? They're reading about addictions. They're reading about anger management. They're reading about what does the Bible have to say about, on the positive side, relationships. I'm in a new relationship, and I want to know, does the Bible have wisdom for me? I was in an Uber with a, an Uber driver in Colorado Springs. And he was confiding in me that he's a parent and he's kind of a, you know, Grizzly Adams mountain man kind of a guy. And he said, I'm trying to figure out how to teach my kids to be moral, to be good citizens. And I said, that's interesting. How do you do that? And he said, well, I read them Grimm's fairy tales at night. And you may remember Grimm's fairy tales. Those are the things that terrified yeah. you and made you think yeah. there were monsters they're, they're under your bed graphic. or in your closet. They're I mean, they're, 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 they're frightening, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so I just went out on a limb and I said, yeah, that's an interesting approach. Uh, I'm thinking if you want to, you know, if you, if you want to keep your medieval German children from wandering off into the woods and, <laughs> and being eaten by a, a wolf or a bear. Uh, but what like I said stranger was, things. <laughs> yeah, you know, so what I asked him was, uh, have you ever wondered if the Bible might have something to help you be a better parent or your kids be better people? And, you know, he looked at me in the rearview mirror and I could see just open astonishment. And he went, you know, I've never thought about that before. And this is a thing that we're noticing even in the population data. There's a curiosity about what the Bible says and about who Jesus is. And I think sometimes in America, we've wrapped the message of the Bible or the story of Jesus so much in our own cultural accoutrements that mm -hmm. people can't see Jesus for seeing us. You know, maybe we're a particular kind of person politically, or we're a particular kind of person rural or urban, or we're this or we're that, whatever categories you want. And we've sort of cloaked the message of the gospel in our own culture. And so people who feel distant from us culturally consequently feel distant from us spiritually, when really the invitation of Christ is transcultural. Um, it reaches people in every culture, and it offers an invitation to people to come close to Jesus. Now, it also confronts every culture. It also says, hey, the things you think are normal might not be God's best for you. And so there's both invitation and critique, I think, to people from every part of the world, including the United States. John, this is fascinating to me. This whole discussion, the the stats, the the, the chapter on the state of the Bible— you mentioned that chapter three dropped today. Now, how many chapters are we expected to see? We are going to release a new chapter every month from now through the end of the year. There's some great stories that are yet to come. If you go to stateofthebible.org, you can download the current version for free no matter when you're listening to the podcast. And so it will be there for you. Just give us your name and email address and you can download it. And then we'll let you know when every new chapter drops. So you can pick up the latest one and, and figure it all out. But if you read the introduction, there's the list of all the topics we're going to cover. And then in December, hmm. we'll do a year in review. And then you start all over again for January. We start all over in January. We take about three months off while we collect data and analyze it. And then typically around Easter, uh, we drop the first chapter. So, John, how can people learn more about what you're doing, follow you? And uh, you've already mentioned the website, going to, you know, checking out the state of the Bible. But what are other ways that people can learn more about this? 
I think one great way is just visit us at AmericanBible.org. AmericanBible.org tells about all of the work that we are doing, whether it's in translation or in trauma healing, working with the U.S. Armed Services, which we've been doing since 1817, Mm -hmm. Uh, just lots and lots of work going on from the Bible Society. It's a wonderful organization. I'd encourage you to check it out. You can, of course, go to stateofthebible.org and download the report. And there are links to articles that you can find in the media. There are webinars posted there if you want to dig in a little deeper on like the Gen Z topic. The Gen Z webinar is linked there at the site. You can click on it and listen to that conversation with me and Mark Matlock. And so uh, lots of resources there please reach out to us and join in the conversation. Well, we will be sure to put all of those different links in the show notes so that people can go there and check it out for themselves. But John, I want to thank you for coming on Apollos Watered. You've been a delight and it's been just illuminating, exciting, depressing, but also hope-giving at the same time to go through this. But thank you again for coming on to Apollos Watered. Thanks, Travis. It's been a pleasure. I don't know about you, but I found that conversation absolutely fascinating. There is a lot of negative, but in the middle of all that, there's positive. And that's the hope of engaging the Bible. It has real, tangible effects on our lives. And as Christians, we should not be surprised by that. At the same time, when less and less people are familiar with the Bible, haven't even considered looking to it for advice or solutions to life's problems— that should tell us something. I had some takeaways, water bottles, if you will, from my conversation with John. If we want people to engage with the Bible, we need to do these things. First up, we need to start thinking like missionaries. We can't assume that our neighbors, maybe even the people sitting next to us in church, share our cultural assumptions anymore, or have any idea of how to engage the Bible, knowing what it's about, where to start, even how to read it. We have to listen and learn who our neighbors are and how they think. Secondly, we need to use Bibles that speak the language of everyday people. If they can't understand it, they won't read it. You know, that's why, that's why we believe in the NLT, the New Living Translation, because we believe that understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Thirdly, we also believe that community matters. It reinforces us to read and engage the Word. We need to cultivate opportunities for biblical engagement in our churches and with our neighbors. Finally, we need to remember that disruptions, positive and negative, provide opportunities for the gospel to penetrate people's lives. For the scripture to come alive for people, that need, that's what needs to happen. We know that when that movable middle John talked about and that disengaged group these who were once Bible readers, when this movable middle or those disengaged do start looking, they're looking for answers to the difficult questions in life, and we need to be prepared to direct them to the source. As John said, we need a revolution of going to God's Word and saying, if it happened there, it can happen here. How do I become a catalyst for full life in Christ to happen in my church, in my community, in my sphere of influence, and then trust God to broaden that influence. Those are great words, and that was an amazing conversation. And if this episode has helped you, would you consider partnering with us? We're delighted and grateful for all of those who have already taken the plunge and helped us, come alongside us. You are our heroes and our watering warriors for Jesus. 
For those who are ready to take the plunge, then go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button in the upper right-hand corner. There you will find many suggested amounts. Pick the one that is right for you or simply write in the amount and surprise us. If you've been impacted while listening to this episode, do me a favor, screenshot it, text it to a friend, share it on your stories, or simply share it directly from your podcast platform. Subscribing and leaving a review also opens up the nozzle of God's fire hose to water more people. And be sure to check out our content on Instagram, Facebook, and our website. Together, let's open up that spigot of truth. Let the water flow and watch God make it grow. And I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you in part by FCC Cabinets of Jacksonville, Florida. Much thanks to the Apollos Water team, Kevin, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, Rebecca, and Audrey. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. Thank you.